pray. Father God, we thank you so much for uh, this word to us that you have prepared for us to hear this morning. Please do help us to, to grapple with it, to grasp it, to understand what it is teaching. And as ever, we pray, though, for your Spirit's work in our, our hearts to enable us to respond in the right way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, let's see if this one works. Manifestos. Oh, sorry, Benjamin, you're back to the first one. Manifestos. Uh, it's been a few years since we uh, heard these ones, but you know, political parties, in the build-up to an election, they present their manifesto. It's their, their policies and their aims, you know, if they get elected, what they're going to do. It tells us what they are about. It's not just politicians. You know, businesses have it, um, are very good at doing it often. Uh, just yesterday, we went swimming for the first time in our, the new pool in Victoria Park. Uh, with one of our boys, it's great. Um, but you might know that's run by Better, who run gyms, swimming pools, um, uh, libraries. Uh, and their manifesto, as it were, is the feel-good place. That's what they want to generate. Wherever you are, they want a the feel-good place. We, we have one. Uh, you may well know it, or you might be aware of it. This one here. Every member making disciple-makers. That is Lionsdown's manifesto. That is what we are about. Every member, every Christian who's part of Lionsdown is involved in that process of making disciples of the Lord Jesus, who in turn will make other disciples of the Lord Jesus. That's our manifesto. So manifestos can be really helpful in understanding what something or someone is all about. And this morning we are going to see Jesus' manifesto. What it is that Jesus is all about. Now, we've spent a good number of weeks in Luke so far, and through the first four chapters, we have seen an awful lot about Jesus. Perhaps the dawn one, we've seen that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, as the Son of God, what is he about? And so that's what we are going to see this morning. Uh, what we see today is a, a kind of day at the local synagogue. The synagogue was kind of like the, the church for the Jews back then. And Luke places these events at this one synagogue right here as he prepares us for what Jesus is going to do. And I think it's going to be helpful for all of us. Perhaps this morning you're, you're pretty new to Christian things. Actually, you don't really know what Jesus is about. Well, we're going to have it here in 25 minutes, what Jesus is all about. I want to prepare you, though. Actually, it might be a little surprising, even for those who are Christians, even those who, who think we understand and know what Jesus is about. It might be a little surprising what we see today. It might even be offensive. Jesus' manifesto might even be offensive. The question is, is will we let Jesus explain what he's about, or will we stick to our own assumptions? This morning, I want you to come on a journey as well. I want us to work our imaginations. Okay, you're going to work with me here. I want you to, you, we're going to be average Joe, average Josephs, average Joannas back in Nazareth. So we're going to travel back 2,000 years, we're going to come halfway across the world to a small town called Nazareth in Israel. And we are going to be part of this day at the synagogue. 
As I said, the synagogue was kind of, it was like the meeting house for the Jews where they would come. I know this is the modern day one, which is kind of rather fancy. The one in Nazareth would have looked nothing like that because Nazareth was a bit of a kind of nothingy place, very backwater town. But it's where the people, particularly the men, would have gathered to hear scriptures read and to hear teaching and to discuss them. And this particular day at the synagogue, there's a real buzz Okay, there's a real excitement because they've got a guest speaker. It's their hometown boy, Jesus. There has been a bit of excitement generated. We can see from chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, that word has got around about Jesus. He's been going around and he's been teaching in synagogues and people have been very excited by what they have heard. And Jesus, the hometown boy, has come back. And events have slowed down for us as he gets ready. So first of all, in verse 16, he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled it and found the place. Then he reads. And you see the symmetry in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the tension is now, what's he going to say? But we see that in verse 20. All the, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus presents his manifesto. He does so by quoting the prophet Isaiah. So let's read them. This is it. This is what Jesus is about. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then Jesus delivers what's got to be the best, most significant sermon there has ever been. And I'm gutted that we only get a one-sentence summary. But I'm sure this is what this is, this one-sentence summary. Verse 21, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, look, this prophecy written by the prophet Isaiah all those years ago where he predicted that God's anointed one, his chosen one, his Messiah was going to come, here I am. Here I am. This is significant because all the other prophets in the Old Testament, they were all saying, I'm not him, there he is, point, looking outwards. John the Baptist, we saw a couple of weeks ago. Everyone's like, oh, are you the Christ? No, 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 not me, Jesus. All the prophets point out, and here Jesus says, here I am. And what Jesus explains in these verses is then worked out, we see it lived out in the rest of Luke's Gospel. So what is it? What is it that Jesus filled? What is his manifesto? Firstly, it's good news. Well, this is it, actually, sorry, not firstly. This is his manifesto. Good news for the poor. See that in verse 18? He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, we need to unpack almost every word of this. But that's our headline that we're now going to unpack. So first off, though, we see at the beginning of verse 18 that he is anointed by the Spirit. Uh, And again, if we're back there in the, the... 
uh, synagogue, our, our minds might go, oh yeah, we heard something about Jesus' baptism, some crazy events where, where the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended in the form like a dove and rested on Jesus. So Jesus is anointed by the spirits. And he's been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. And then the following lines, I think, are kind of explaining what that means. Good news to the poor is the kind of headline, and then we get the sub points explaining that. Now, the people back then, they were in a better position to understand what Jesus meant here. Because the key to understanding Jesus' uh, manifesto here is understanding who is the focus of Jesus' ministry. Because here we find the, the poor, uh, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Who are those things? Who are those groups of people? It is a massive oversimplification uh, to limit them to a kind of literal understanding here. Now we just see actually even in the next miracle, in the next, um, next week we're going to see the, Jesus' very first miracle has a spiritual dimension to it. We see through Luke that actually, yes, wonderfully, Jesus does minister to the poor, the, the, the physically poor, which is great. But actually we equally see him reaching out to the wealthy. We find him going to tax collectors, for example. In, John, we only see, in Luke, we only find one prisoner, John the Baptist, who we saw get arrested again a couple of weeks ago. He ends up being beheaded. So, so, so it's, Jesus' mission manifesto is more than just those, those literal, physical categories. To understand what Jesus' ministry is about, we've got to understand what Isaiah meant by those terms. And again, the people back there, they would have had a better understanding than us. They'd have been very familiar with the book of Isaiah. Maybe you are. Sorry to offend you if, you, if you're an expert. But, but they would have put it very simply. Isaiah is a chapter of 66 books. Okay? It's a, a pro- prophecy. And in very general terms, chapters 1 to 39 are all about God's judgments. God's judgment on the um, sinful nations around Israel who are worshipping false gods but also judgment on God's people who have continually rebelled against him, turned their back on him and turned to these false gods. But then chapter 40 onwards is is, um, a wonderful celebration of God's salvation. We did a couple of weeks ago, look at Isaiah 40, 1 and 2, where God speaks comfort, comfort to my people. That judgment is coming to an end. When your sins are paid double, it's going to be peace. There's going to be salvation. And these verses in Isaiah 60 come in a section that are all looking at God's anointed king who's going to come and rescue the people in a great salvation. You see, in Isaiah, the poor weren't a subsection of Israel who had less money than everybody else. Actually, the poor was the whole nation of Israel who were under God's judgment in exile. You see, the Babylonians had come in and and completely battered them, either killing a lot of people there and then or carrying them off into exile. And because of this this great defeat, that we find them described as the poor, or or afflicted comes up a huge number of times in these uh, these chapters of of Isaiah. We find them oppressed. We find them to be blind because of their sin. They are captives in Babylon. And God's judgment is upon them for their repeated rebellions. 
So God, through his prophet Isaiah, is speaking to the people in exile and saying, look, my chosen one is going to come who's going to bring about the most remarkable change of fortunes. There's going to be liberty for the captives, sight for the blind, liberty for the oppressed. Let's look at those. Liberty, that was the the emphasis on these verses. It it comes twice. And in fact... um, either Jesus himself or probably Luke, again, I think this is a summary, so he's kind of bringing together. But, but Luke brings actually a verse from Isaiah 58 into this sentence, which is uh, that second uh, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Actually, sorry, it might be the first one. I think it's the first one. But, but he brings in one of these, these liberty things to really draw the emphasis on it. That word liberty is the idea of release, being set free. And, and again, it's just far more than just this kind of physical um, captivity to freedom. So as I said before, this is a Jesus manifesto that's going to be worked out through the rest of the book. Uh, and uh, particularly we find this word release come a number of times. We find it again and again and again. Uh, just two examples, just because the ones that we've already looked at here. Uh, just, just two examples of many. But we find the idea of release actually being translated as forgiveness of sins. So here we these are both spoken of John the Baptist. Firstly, to give knowledge of salvation in his people, sorry, salvation to his people in the forgiveness, in the release of their sins. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness, the release of sins. So Luke's primary emphasis of release in his gospel is that people are released from their sins, their sins are forgiven. And ultimately, in the gospel, we see that is because Jesus died for those sins. That's the liberty that Jesus is going to bring. He is also going to bring liberty from Satan. We saw last time out, Jesus standing firm against his own temptations. We'll see next time out, Jesus' first miracle is setting somebody free from the power of Satan. He's going to bring liberty from death. In chapter 7, he's going to go to the widow of Nain, whose son has died, and bring this child back to life. And ultimately, at the end of the gospel, having died for those sins, he is, Jesus himself is going to rise from the death, proving that he brings life to all who are trusting in him. That's the liberty that Jesus is going to bring. Release from sins, release from Satan, release from death. Jesus is going to bring sight. Again, in the gospel, we see him wonderfully restoring sight to those physically blind but always picturing that process of somebody becoming a Christian, somebody coming to see who Jesus really is. Down the end, in verse 19, we see he's going to come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Quite a few years ago, we um, celebrated the Queen's Jubilee, didn't we? It was a good old, good old party. Maybe you had street parties or whatever it might have been. Well, a jubilee that's being talked about here you know, it's better than a bank holiday, okay? We had one day off and, and celebrations. Uh, the, the year of the Lord's favour is that, a year. He's throwing back to Leviticus chapter 25, when Israel, every 50 years, would have a jubilee year. And it was a wonderful time of celebration. But more than that, it was a time when um, people were restored. So property that had changed hands from one family to another would be returned to the original owners when debts, financial debts, would be forgiven, 
when somebody who'd uh, got themselves into debt and had to sell themselves as a slave and they were in slavery, they would be then set free. That is the year of the Lord's favour, this, this freedom that Jesus is bringing. And interesting, if, we, if you're to look in Isaiah and to read from Isaiah um, 60 and, and verse 1 and 2, which is quoted here, to just notice what isn't included in Luke. So we had to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and stop. In Isaiah, it goes on, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus deliberately stops here. Yes, there is a time of vengeance, a time of judgment, but that is going to be at Jesus' second coming. This first coming, this is the time of God's favour. This is the time of salvation. Truly, this is good news for the poor. Truly. But, as we've just understood, actually, truly, this is good news for all of us. Because by Isaiah's definition, we are all poor, every single one of us. But therefore, it is good news for every single one of us. We are all naturally poor like those in Isaiah, not necessarily physically afflicted, oppressed, blind, captives, although we may be. But, as Alex explained at the beginning, we have all lived without him as our God. We have all rebelled against him. And we are all facing his judgment because of that. We are all the poor. And so we are all the focus of Jesus' mission. Good news. That those sins, you know, those sins that weigh you down, that only you know about, there is release from those sins. And although Satan's temptations are fierce, we know that through Jesus we get set free from his power. And although the prospect of death is scary and we fear for perhaps those we leave behind, we are free of death's sting because we know that actually there is life beyond. Good news for the poor. I think this is a great leveller for us as a church. This is a great leveller because this all brings us onto that playing field of, of needing God's salvation. But it also brings us all onto that same playing field of being the focus of Jesus' work and mission. You might this morning feel like a nobody. You might feel like, why would Jesus ever be interested in me? Well, you're exactly the kind of person that Jesus is interested in. You're exactly the kind of person who Jesus came to set free. That's the good news. And so in verse 22, no wonder uh, we, get the most, we get this positive response. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. They're amazed, if a little confused. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph who lived on East Barnet Road? He went to Dane Grove, worked in Sainsbury's as a Saturday job. We know him. I think it is confusion, not derision. I think it's confusion, not derision. I think this is Luke's little joke. <laughs> they think he's Joseph's son. They remember, we've already said he's God's son. But it does also show that they, they haven't got it. They really haven't got it yet. Amazed, yes but they haven't got it. And so we move into the second half, and we're going to see the bad 
response of the proud. So the good news for the poor, bad response of the proud. Because what comes next is quite a remarkable change. Jesus goes from hero to zero quicker than whichever England player is going to miss a penalty on Tuesday. It's going to happen. I know, sorry. It's going to happen. And someone's going to fall from grace. But what we see here from Jesus isn't hero to zero. It's hero to public enemy number one, like that. Look at this. So we've just said everyone is speaking well of him. Now look down at verse 28. And when they heard all these things in the synagogue, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. What on earth has happened to go from A to B? How do they go from being amazed and marvelling and speaking well of to we're going to kill him? It's all about what Jesus said next. We said, so that's the beginning of verse 28, when they heard these things. See verse, the beginning of verse 23, and he said to them, beginning of verse 24, and he said, beginning of verse 25, but in truth I tell you, there are three things that Jesus says that rouse this quite remarkable rage in those who are present. So Joseph, Joanna's come back with me to the synagogue and we try and make sense of this. Verse, uh, verse 23. Let's see the first of these sayings, uh, things that Jesus said. And he, Jesus, said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What you have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. It's this, apparently this kind of well-known proverb of the day that had some, went something along the lines of this. Look, you're doing good to others. Well, you better better make sure that you're doing good to your family as well. You kind of can't bring blessing to, to those out there you kind of don't really know and will neglect your loved ones. Now, that seems to be what they're saying. And I think that's certainly the sense that we get in the, the second half of verse 23, where, where I think this second line kind of explains it, where Jesus knows what they're thinking. He says that what you have heard you did at Capernaum, do in your hometown as well. That you've been doing wonderful miracles and great stuff out there in Capernaum, Come and do it here in Nazareth. You kind of think, right, we've just heard, Jesus just said that he's going to bring this, the year of the Lord's favour, the liberation, the, the freedom, all these wonderful things. Right, bring it. Right here, right now. You've been doing it in Capernaum. Let's have some of that here in Nazareth. The second thing that Jesus said to them, well, if they've got a proverb for Jesus, well, Jesus has a proverb for them. So verse 24 and he said to them, truly, I, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Well, yes, I did live on East Barnet Road. Yes, I did go to Dengrove. Yes, I did work in Sainsbury's as my Saturday job. Uh, and you think I, you know who I am because of that. And so I won't be accepted here in my hometown. And that was the case in the Old Testament. Uh, particularly Elijah and Elisha, who are going to be referred to in the moments, uh, were persecuted by their own people. And Jesus says, that's going to happen for me as well. And he says, look, you won't accept me, but others will. And so Jesus points the people back to two examples in Old Testament times, two dark times in Israel's history, 
when God's people were in a real mess, they, they turned from God to serve and worship false gods. So see this, verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. A real mess, right? Famine, no foods. And Elijah was sent to none of them, that's none of the widows in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, to a Gentile, to a non-Jew. Elijah went and in the most remarkable miracle provided for this widow and her son. Well, God did through Elijah. Verse 27, so that's the first example. And verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman the Syrian, he was the, like the commander of the armies of the, the Syrians, enemies of God's people, who'd actually led the armies in this great victory against God's people. And in the most remarkable set of circumstances that God's brought about, it is he, this leper, he gets leprosy and he is cleansed by following Elisha's instructions to bath in the Jordan. Both of these examples highlight Israel's need. Do you notice that? Both of them were told that there were many widows, there were many lepers in Israel. But in God's sovereign good choice, he gave his blessing to those Gentiles, to those outside of the people of God. And also both of these examples highlight the need to trust God's word before they saw the miracle. So in both of those cases, they were told what to do and they had to trust God's word before they received the miracle. They did and they did receive it. These three things that Jesus said all, to, all together highlights the people's pride. Each of these three sayings are kind of prodding at the people's pride. That he knows that the people of his hometown, they feel entitled to the good news that Jesus spoke of. Like we've heard of this good, this good news of liberation, sight, blessing. Just think about how good this is going to be for us. We're his hometown friends. Look, we're going to be first in the line. This is going to be amazing. They feel entitled to God's blessing. Then they know that their familiar, Jesus knows that their familiarity with him will stop them seeing that Jesus is really much bigger than their puny self-advancement ideas. This is Joseph, you know, from down Joseph's son from down the road. We kind of know too much about him for him to be more than we think he could possibly be. And Jesus knows that they're going to be offended by this idea that God's blessing wouldn't just go to them, their, their people, but actually would go wider to the Gentiles as well. Jesus challenging their pride. He's come to preach, he's come to preach good news to the poor, to bring liberation, sight, God's favour to all who will humble themselves and trust in him. And they recognise, these people recognise Jesus' power they're amazed at his teaching, but they do not like his mission. And so having heard all these things, they are filled with wrath. They, they try and kill him, as we saw before. And we don't quite know 
how, but you see verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. We see that the, the, the universal availability of the good news isn't matched by a corresponding uh, universal acceptance of him. That wonder turned to wrath in the space of a sermon. Wow. And this, this, what we find here sets a pattern for what is going to happen right through Luke's gospel. of rejection of Jesus that ultimately led to them killing him. But at the end of the gospel, rather than Jesus slipping through their midst, it was his time. And so he didn't slip away. And even when he was mocked upon the cross and said, look, come down, save yourself. And he could have, we saw it here, but he didn't. Because it was his time that the good news that he preached was being fully enacted as he laid down his life, paying for those sins, bringing victory over Satan and indeed death. Well, and his escape was even more remarkable, I guess, because he didn't uh, avoid death, but actually he came through death and rose again after three days victoriously. I want to finish just by uh, a couple of uh, implications, challenges for us. And the first one is to, to, to watch out, well, they're all to watch out for those things that we saw in the people there. The first one is to watch out for feelings of entitlement. They, they felt they were entitled to God's blessing. And it's possible for us to feel entitled to God's blessing too. Maybe it's because you, you were born into a Christian family. Maybe it's because you come to church every week of your life. Maybe it's because you, you, you try really hard to be a good person. Whatever it is, maybe you feel entitled, but actually we see here that all are poor, all are needing of Jesus, uh, Jesus' salvation. Secondly, watch out for familiarity. Okay, they thought they knew who Jesus was, and so they couldn't grasp it when he said he was bigger than what they thought he was. They were familiar with him. Maybe a particular warning or challenge, perhaps if you're perhaps a teenager and you're growing up in a Christian family, familiarity, you hear of Jesus all the time. You come to church, maybe you have family Bible times. Yeah, yeah, I know who Jesus is. Well, do you know who Jesus is? Will you let Jesus shape your understanding of who Jesus is? But of course, that's not just for teenagers, that's all of us. Let's have Jesus shape our understanding of him. And then finally, delight in the universal scope of the good news. I imagine that the idea of being offended that Jesus would be interested in other people is a bit of a strange one for us. Okay, but, but just to think about it, think of the situation in Israel and Palestine today. Right? And for God's, to say, someone to say to the Israelites, you know, God's blessing is going to go to the Palestines or go to somebody else. Think of the, think of the offense that that would cause there. That's there, or, or maybe in India, you know, the caste system, the Dalits, the untouchables, that God's blessing would, would go, go to them. Now, for us, probably not offense, offensive that, this, that the scope is wide, but it might be surprising. You know, that, that God isn't just interested in people like me, of, of my race, my nationality, my class, my education, my whatever. Actually, as we walk around New Barnet or wherever you, you, you are, to actually know that everyone is poor, everyone is under that scope of needing Jesus' good news. 
This is Jesus. This is his manifesto. Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. Jesus came to bring liberation, sight, salvation. That's his mission. That's ours too. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for all that we've seen here. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you came to bring salvation, blessing, freedom, sight, liberty, all those wonderful things. You came to bring them to unworthy, undeserving people like us. Pray that we would see that we are indeed unworthy of these things and trust in Jesus for them and that we would know these wonderful things to be true for ourselves. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.